You're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. For this episode, I engage a conversation with Hannah Folger. Hannah is a playwright, currently working on a novel as well, member of St. Benedict's Table. She started coming off and on in 2013 and then moved over more fully in 2015. She has twice served as our artist-in-residence, once for a 12-month term and currently in a three-month term. Hannah is, I think, the only playwright I really know. I remember the first time I became aware of her. We were holding one of our house communions, living room liturgies, we call them. It was a large gathering at the Rivergate Inn, the owners of which would host us there fairly regularly. The musicians were engaged in a bit of a jam session after the communion was over and food was being shared. And somebody pointed to Hannah and said, you know, we have musicians sharing their gifts all the time. She's working on a play. She's a playwright. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? And it has been good to facilitate the sharing of her work over the years. As in the context of her residency, she has several times arranged to do readings of works in progress, both for the general congregation and also in the context of our artist network. Well, transition is on the horizon for Hannah, so I thought it would be good to sit down and talk about her work, her sense of vocation as a writer, and a few other things along the way. This is Hannah Folger. Hannah, welcome. Thank you for uh, sitting down virtually to do this with us. Can you tell us a little bit about you? I mean, I, I've i known you for a good number of years. I know pieces of, of, of your story, fairly big pieces, but lots of people listening won't have a clue as to who you are. So who are you? And what drew you into the world of theater? I'm fairly lucky in that I was exposed to theater at a young age, but it was... And it, Feels kind of ordained because it's not something my my family was involved with at all. Um, so my parents uh, were, when I was born, were working with Youth at the Mission, which is an evangelical missions organization that is all over the world. Um, my dad was working a lot in the video production end of things, and they ended up, so my family is from the United Kingdom, and I was born in Amsterdam where they were serving there. When I was a year old, we moved to Canada to work with the uh, base in Cambridge, Ontario, where my dad was going to be doing video production stuff, but it was also like a theater and arts school in connection to ministry and evangelism. So I spent a lot of my formative years sitting in the tech booth with my dad because he got reined in to being a theater tech. And so just watching people create theater, um, create dance pieces. One of them was based on the story of Nate Van Saint and Jim Elliott and all those missionaries that went to Ecuador. Uh, that one gave me nightmares, but I was like influenced from a young age, just understanding and seeing what theater was. And it was always so exciting to me. I was at a talk back once at the Shakespeare Master Playwrights Festival a couple years ago. And the people on stage were talking about when they first heard Shakespeare or found out about Shakespeare. And I thought, I don't know. I don't remember because 
I've been around theater people for so long that I must have accessed it at some point previous to my established memory. So that that's where I got started. Or that's where I first experienced theater. And when I was in school, I did theater classes and stuff. I was always writing. I wrote my first story when I was four years old with my brother typing it out on the Commodore 64. <laughs> Do you remember what the story is or did somebody keep it? Um, we, I reread it when I was 13, but I'm pretty sure my mom tossed it sometime after that when we moved. The other thing is that I don't remember when I watched Star Wars, but I, in the story, I was, it was about this like fairy that becomes human size. And then there's this part where it goes, and then Luke and Leia came and Han too. And so apparently I was very excited about the Star Wars movie that I had just seen. But I talk about this in one of my plays um, because there's a philosopher that talks about the moment uh, where the world breaks open for an artist. And so for right. me, there are two moments, and I write about this in The View From Here. One of them was writing that first story with my brother, and he talks. He named the file Chap One, and there was this moment where it, something just went off in my brain because I realized that he had contained the meaning of the whole word chapter just by cutting it down. And that blew my mind. And that was just like this moment of these are the things that you can do with language. And then also just helping my dad out doing tech stuff and doing the, um, the sound check with him. It was, these are just like these key memories have kind of fostered those artistic impulses in me even later on. I studied broadcasting though. I I had gotten into journalism school, but I just wasn't, I was more excited about cameras. It wasn't until I was 19 and I took a playwriting course with a local playwright who was involved in the theater school with YWAM that my parents had, had worked with and had known me my entire life. So that's Gary Karkram. So that really ignited this passion for writing again, especially with theater. I love dialogue. I have a, a director friend named Kendra Jones who likes to say that theater is about what people do to each other. And so what really excites me about writing are particularly two things, characters and images. So uh, I'm really excited about the things that characters can do to each other and how they, they make each other move and go in different directions. What happened at... A year after that, after I had discovered playwriting and decided that I wanted to leave broadcasting behind, I had a, a blood clot in my brain from a genetic birth defect, which completely changed my world, obviously. I lost a quarter of my vision. I, I developed some cognitive deficits. Later on, I found out that I had epilepsy. And that has kind of formed the core aspect of my writing. I think that being disabled gives me a unique view in the world. The way that I, I process differently means that I sort of perceive existence differently sometimes. I have a number of poems that have been published. Uh, one of them was in a book last year called Disability Voices that I wrote around the time that I first started having seizures, uh, exploring this question of like, who am I when I'm not here? How do I like form personhood when I'm missing time and parts of myself and I'm experiencing the world differently when I'm having seizures. So I would define myself now in my bio as a writer and theater artist with a brain injury and epilepsy or just a disabled writer. And I know that in, uh, in some of the, some of your uh, theater work that I have seen or heard readings of, or just heard you talk about, 
as well as in, I would just say, your general way of being in the world, you have got an eye to the place and perspective of people who have been in some way othered or marginalized or pressed down or aside. Is that, is that related to, to that whole experience of finding yourself at such a young age walloped by something so unexpected and, and in, in a sense, so life-changing? I mean, in a way, it, it, that really is part of it. But I've always kind of had an understanding of othering because as a missionary kid, I was traveling with my parents at a young age to like orphanages in Mexico and really poor areas of Jamaica. And like for me, the, the kids that I would meet there were no different than me. We would run around and play. But I had this understanding of poverty overseas from a very young age. And we were also really poor for a long time. Uh, when that base shut down, we were squatters in that building. We later moved into government housing. And my family is pretty well educated. And so they, they moved into a more stable financial place. But I've always been and among other marginalized and other peoples. And I think that the intersections of that have always been really interesting to me, even now in some of the stuff I'm working on and thinking about is like within disabled communities, what are the differences between how white people experience disability and people of color experience disability? And how do we wrestle with our different forms of, of privilege within that? So that's, mm. those are things that really interest me. You just mentioned the fact that your family could rebound because they had a you know a level of education and capacity, so the financial rebound could happen. Which, which then brings me to the subject of yes, and as a an aspiring and um, published writer and and playwright, that doesn't necessarily pay the bills. I mean, you I know you've had a whole lot of different jobs over the years, paying the bills. But a job isn't necessarily the same thing as your work, your vocation. Any thoughts on that? I mean... Your sense of vocation. Sense of vocation. I've always known that I was a storyteller. Like The fact that I wrote my first story at four years old. My brother was also a writer and had a huge capacity for language. But I've always known since I was very young that creating stories was was always what I wanted to do um at times when I thought about doing journalism I have always liked to read or write fiction and poetry um so at the core of it is always that I am a storyteller I find that especially as a person with a brain injury um I find employment can be very difficult uh to do other things but I I, I do my best. I've been in a couple really difficult work situations and people have always said that they're, they're impressed by my ability to persevere, even if my abilities in other ways are not as substantial. I have gotten back into writing and editing, well, within a journalistic capacity for the Uniter over the past couple of years. And I've started to move into accessibility consulting I worked with Green Kids on a new project to develop a new play that they can give to high school students. And so I was able to not only review the play in a way that they could, because it's to be given to high schools in order to pick up and perform it and direct and design themselves. So not only looking at who can act in the play, but how that director's guide and the designer's guide 
can make things more accessible and entertaining for disabled people, which has been really exciting. And that all sort of feeds into this key idea of storytelling, but also like enabling other people to start telling their own stories. When I was working at the Uniter, I started a series called Origin Stories, where I looked at established artists and where they'd started, what their initial goals were, and how they moved into the place they were today. And I did that um, mainly with uh, BIPOC people, queer people, women, and disabled people, including Karen Cornelius. There was a, a, a volunteer writer that I suggested she wrote that story about Karen Cornelius, because I think it's really important for people to see themselves like see people like themselves who are artists who are successful and have careers. Yep. I didn't know any theater people growing up. I growing up in a smaller town, I thought that was something that other people did. But I think that especially working with local theater creator Debbie Patterson who has MS, who has really charted a path for disabled theater creators in the city to not only found a disabled theater company called Sick and Twisted Theater that I've worked with, but also she's demonstrated the kind of career and opportunities we can create for ourselves as disabled artists and how our unique perspectives are interesting. Now, St. Ben's has got, for over a decade now, a, an artist in residence position. You are currently doing a, a three-month short-term residency. You previously did a, a full year, 12-month. There is a small stipend that's offered monthly because we believe it's important to do what we can to support artists. But for you, why should why should the people of faith engage the arts, both as creators, but also as audience members or readers of literature or viewers of visual art or a theater piece? What what difference does it make? What's a connection? Art in itself is like it is in a way divine. And so when you're pursuing the creation of art, it, it does seem to me like a version of faith. And Madeleine Laengel writes in Writing on the Water about art as being incarnational. I was just about to cite that to you and then you got there first. <laughs> I love her. Yes. Yeah. Um, why should it, the church care about art? Why should the church care about art? Uh, I think yeah. asking questions and furthering our understanding of the world is also furthering our understanding of God's creation, but also helps us to engage in deeper and more intricate questions. By engaging creativity, you are in a way engaging creation and is fascinating and beautiful and is, for me, I think a reflection of God. Like that is the, the the spark of God within us. I think it is one of God's greatest gifts to us. And it doesn't always look the same. I know for me, I like art that probes deeper and asks questions, but some people just need to look at a piece of art and feel comforted or drawn towards God in some way. But I think that art has this, art is a window for me, mm. whether it's to probe deeper into the meaning of life and what we mean and do to each other or to find beauty in the world. Both in, in your current residency, but also in your previous one to a greater degree, you've, you've done a, a number of readings of works in progress, often with, with three or four really competent actors. And we, we staged, well, we did this one on Zoom this year, but previously we staged them in the chapel 
uh, with with movement and sound effect and expressive faces, even though it was just being rad. And I mean, people, they were just great evenings. But for you as the playwright, how would a reading like that impact the final project? Well, I think anytime you get actors together to read a text, you discover something new, you see what what really works and what doesn't work. So when you see actors stumbling over a line or really understanding the cadence within it, um, and I think if you have skilled actors, they'll, they'll understand the line a little bit more. But even if I've, we've read some plays in the artist network, people who aren't trained performers. And when I, when a text is working, I can see that when an actor reads it in a way that I want it to be read. And as a poet, it's very important to me have a, a specific kind of rhythm. And so when I see that rhythm coming across, it means that I've succeeded. Or if it doesn't come across, I, I can look at that line again. So within the development process, it's always really good to have plays read to sort of feel it in the room, see, chart it through uh, anyone else's experiences. And then you, at the end of it, you can have discussions, not only with people who have attended it, but the actors themselves who have sort of lived in the the text a little bit more. Um, So it really helps you to understand a play from the outside and not only for myself as a playwright, but also to hear how other people are experiencing it from the outside, because I can write a text and be like, Oh, this totally makes sense to me. And then someone else can see and say, I don't know why she made that decision. And sometimes those questions are helpful. You kind of have to listen and understand that not everything people say is, is useful to you, but so much of it is. And what I find is especially important is from people who are not artists themselves or artists in that specific capacity, people who are not necessarily theater creators, I think sometimes give the greatest feedback. And when, when a, a piece has been worked on and edited and revised and workshopped and worked on some more, and it finally is in this space where you can see it brought to the performance stage at the Fringe Festival, for instance, and people are paying to buy a ticket to come into that performance. What does that feel like for you as the as the playwright? Is that terrifying? Oh, totally. Or is that exhilarating? Or is it, what? Well, yeah. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's, I don't know. It's, it feels like the most humble and narcissistic exercise that there is. Uh, ah. Because I, there, there is a thing where you sometimes just desperately want someone to like it. And not every play connects with everyone. Um, I've, I did a fringe show six years ago where this reviewer came from the free press who was not a theater goer who gave us three stars because it was staged in a way where there were audiences on all three sides. And he thought that because he couldn't see everyone all the time that the play was flawed when that was actually the point. And people who were theater goers and, or even who weren't, um, I had discussions with people who really enjoyed that experience because the way that play was staged, it was so that, you would always see who was talking or who was being talked about. Right. Not every performance is going to connect with everyone, but when you find the people that really get it and really understand that, that's so exciting to me. It's a scary, narcissistic, humbling experience all at the same time. That's great. What are you working on now? I mean, you've been in this short-term residency, but what's, what's on the plate? Yeah. Um, right now I've been working on 
a draft of my novel. I really want to get it to one of my mentors in the next couple weeks. I started this uh, term thinking I was going to be working on a specific project that was frankly just too hard for my mental health in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I was researching disability institutions in Canada uh, in the early 1900s and sort of the, the growth of that until the closure of most of them, even though there are still some in existence. There was a lot of abuse of in those institutions and as someone who would have been in that institution it was very hard for me to oh gosh, read yeah. about people like me and the the sort of pain that they were going through and so I took a step back from that in conversation with the arts fund just to continue to work on the other things I was working on continue to take the time to take master classes through the online subscription service so with uh, David Manet and Aaron Sorkin and I took a really great class with Amy Tan through that, which I really loved. Um, So that's part of what this uh, residency has been able to support me to do, um, but also working on my novel. But since we had that reading of Sagittaria, I was able to incorporate some of the feedback I got then into a newer draft of the text, which will have been read on on Wednesday, June 9th, as part of a event for Brain Injury Awareness Month at Manitoba Brain Injury Association. Okay. Yeah. I think part of what the, the Arts Fund Committee has learned over the years is that, that it's most important to say to the artist, yes, that's your goal, but ultimately do your work. Yes. Many times over the years have just have just needed to flex. Yeah, you set out with that, but for good reasons, that needs to sit for now. Go and nurture. Yes. Um, nurture, your, nurture your art, nurture your craft. Now, Big changes coming on the horizon. Big, Tell big change. It. First of all, I just found out that I got a different grant to work on a different project, which is less less traumatic. So I have a grant from the Winnipeg Arts Council to work on a new play about my Celtic roots and about the about the Scottish play Macbeth. Um, as I found out a couple of years ago, I'm a descendant of the Macbeth clan, so I'm writing a new play exploring that. But in the fall, I will be moving to Toronto to do my master's of creative writing. It's an MFA program in creative writing at the university of Guelph. That is a huge change. Um, I've lived in Winnipeg for the past 10 years. Um, I'm originally from Cambridge, which is about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Um, so I will be moving closer to home, but I've never lived in Toronto proper. And we, my return to school after five years, I'm really excited about this program because it places a real emphasis on mentorship which is something that I've been really blessed and fortunate to have here in Winnipeg, whether it's through uh, Debbie Patterson, but I've also been mentored by Joan Thomas, both of those through the Creative Manitoba Careers in the Arts Program, but also through the Creators Unit at Manitoba Theatre for Young People, where I originally wrote Sagittaria. I was fortunate to be mentored by Rick Chafe and Andrea Sardison. One of the reasons I'm really excited about this program is that the... um, Third semester in the summer of next year, we a semester long mentorship with a writer that I. Okay. Yes, I'm I'm super excited about that. But one of my professors is Judith Thompson, who is a brilliant uh, Canadian playwright who's written some of my favorite plays, including The Thrill, Lion in the Streets, Crack Walker. The list goes on and on. Oh, and uh, Perfect Pie. Uh, she also is. Um, she also has epilepsy. And so I'm really excited to work with someone 
who has gone through similar experiences as me. So that's so, so exciting. And um, Dion Brand is a part of the fiction faculty, which will be really great. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the, the, the program's at Guelph, but you're going to live in Toronto. It's at the, uh, so they have a campus at Humber College. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which is also where they have their international development and some business programs. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's so, that's so exciting. It is. I'm very, very excited. And, uh, and hopefully the pandemic restrictions and, and its immediate threat will just continue to uh, lift and lift and lift and lift. And by the time you're living in Toronto, the arts world will be more or less fully opened or opened as in, in a way that will allow you to really engage it. Because uh, it's just great to taste what's going on in another city. Well, I've been joking that, so I live in the West Broadway, Wolseley area. I've been joking that there'll be a bit of a culture shock from going from West Broadway, Wolseley during the pandemic to Toronto post-pandemic. Yes, there might just be a little bit of shock. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, they're planning to do a combination of in-person and online classes, but I'm hoping as vaccinations continue to happen and that we'll be able to do more in-person classes. Aren't we all hoping as vaccinations continue to happen, we'll be able to do more in-person anything. Yes. <laughs> Any Anything else you'd like to add, Hannah? I mean, really, I'm just super grateful for the um, residency opportunities that the Arts Fund has afforded me, but also that this program is there at all, and especially that there is flexibility within it to adapt to changing circumstances, but that it's really there not so much as a project-based program, but just to support artists, which I think is really important, especially during this time. So I want yep. to thank the Arts Fund, but also the the church in general for supporting that uh, in both me and Lois this past year. Yeah, Lois Gillespie is doing some months as, our, as a musician artist in residence, doing songwriting and developing her craft as well. So yeah, kind of a neat combination. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I, w- I would love to think that before you move to Toronto that the church doors might be open and we might actually have people in the building and we might be able to send you with a blessing. But if that doesn't happen, know that, uh, that, that you are blessed in your gifts and you go with our blessing as a community. But we'll talk again before you leave. Yes. All right. Even if we can't open up completely, I've been hoping that maybe you'll let me sneak in the back during a service. Well, you know, it, it, once once they, they say, well, we can have 10 people in the building instead of five, we could have you come, be there, receive communion with the, the people who are leading, and but also we could do a little blessing for you. So let's let's talk about, let, let's plan on that. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're interested in more of Hannah's work as a writer, you'll be interested to know that she has worked for the Uniter, the University of Winnipeg student newspaper, which is distributed widely beyond the university, easy to pick up in many locations during usual times. She was there starting in 2019 as an arts and culture reporter, and then was promoted to arts and culture editor this year. The publishing year for the newspaper ends in March, and so she's now transitioned from that position. But she did good work there. 
She's also contributed a number of pieces to the local diocesan online newspaper, the Rupert's Land News, and in the show notes we'll provide a link so you can follow and take a look at some of what she's offered to the church. As a church community, St. Benedict's Table is committed to supporting and nurturing the work of artists in our midst because the gifts they bring us in our liturgy and beyond have been of immeasurable importance. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, our online ministry, but also our arts ministry, donations can be made to St. Benedict's Table through our website, www.stbenedictstable.ca. No pressure, just an invitation. Oh, and I should say, The music you're hearing on this podcast is by Robert Burton, another one of our members. It was originally recorded for our Book of Hours project back in 2009. This is just an excerpt of a much longer piece called The Waiting. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.